Last time we spoke about Operation Cartwheel, developments on Green Hell, and some new adventures in Burma. General Douglas MacArthur had his work cut out for him when he developed his original Elkton plan into what became known as Operation Cartwheel. Alongside the United States Navy, MacArthur set out the blueprints for seizing parts of New Guinea and the Solomons before taking the ultimate prize that was Rebel. The Japanese meanwhile extended their efforts to hammer Allied air bases in the South Pacific with lackluster results. Over in New Guinea, the Allied forces were drawing closer to seizing Leh by using Salamaua as a distraction. And over in the Burma front, the disastrous Arakan campaign had resulted in some shuffling of leadership and now the Auk was working with General Slim to see if they could prepare the Indian army for another go at the Japanese. And today, we're going to be venturing back into all of these stories. This episode is the Battle of Lababia Ridge. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released a kind of funny episode, a tier list ranking generals of the Pacific War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Over there, this month's exclusive podcast is part four of my series about General Kanji Ishiwara the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the author behind the final war theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Last time we were speaking about Operation Cartwheel, and part of phase one for Admiral Halsey and the Solomons, which was to move north from Guadalcanal to hit New Georgia, codenamed Operation Toenails. Halsey planned to perform four simultaneous landings, one was directed at Wickham Anchorage by the 2nd Battalion 103rd Regiment plus two companies from the 4th Raider Battalions led by Lieutenant Colonel Lester Brown. They would be turning Wickham into a new landing craft layover base. A second landing would be made at Segi Point by companies O and P of the 4th Raider Battalion and companies A and D of the 103rd Regiment, who would garrison Segi Point and its airfield afterwards. Another landing would be made at Vero Harbor by Company B of the 103rd Regiment for its small craft base over there. And finally, a landing would be made at Rendova Harbor by the 172nd Regiment and the 24th Naval Construction Battalion, Seabees, which would become a stage for further troops coming over to New Georgia before the final drive upon Munda was made. The 43rd Infantry Division, led by Major General John Hester, was going to take the lead against Munda. The 43rd were actually a National Guard division from Connecticut, Maine, Rhode Island, and Vermont, who were mobilized and reorganized as a triangular division. This meant that they were going to be three regiments rather than four. They would be brought up to strength, but in reality, the only real experience they had by this point was some unopposed landings on the Russell Islands early in 1943. 
They had several months to prepare for the campaign. Hester got the men to construct pillboxes based off of the ones they found on Guadalcanal made by the Japanese. However, the terrain found on Guadalcanal, or on the Russell Islands for that matter, did not really bear much resemblance to what would be on New Georgia. In April of 1943, the 14th Corps arranged for the 147th Regiment, veterans of the Guadalcanal Campaign, who had chased the Japanese west during Operation KE, to conduct several training exercises with the 43rd Division. However, as noted by many of the men in the regiment, the terrain was not very similar to what was to be expected on New Georgia, hampering the training overall. By mid-June, the 103rd Infantry and the 169th Infantry also began training exercises on Guadalcanal using landing craft. Now you may have noticed in my listing, there was a mention of the 4th Raiders. Two new Raider battalions were now entering the fray. The 3rd Raiders, led by Lt. Col. Harry Liversedge, were coming over fresh from Samoa, and the 4th Raiders were led by Lt. Col. James Roosevelt, from Camp Pendleton of California. And yes, in case you were wondering, James Roosevelt II was the eldest son of FDR. Since 1936, he had been serving as his father's military aide under the commission of a captain in the Marine Corps Reserve. When the war broke out in Europe in 1939, he entered active duty. And starting in April of 1941, FDR sent him on a secret mission. James traveled around the world on a diplomatic mission to assure other governments that the United States would join the war despite the official neutrality stance. He met with Chiang Kai-shek in China, King Farouk in Egypt, King George of Greece, Sir Winston Churchill of Britain and such. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, he sat right beside his father as he gave the legendary Day of Infamy speech, and soon he requested an active combat assignment. He was transferred to the Marine Raiders by January of 1942, and he became the second-in-command of the Second Raiders under Carlson. He took part in the Makin Island Raid in August of 1942, which earned him a Navy Cross. He had some health issues, such as flat feet, and he got the special privilege of being allowed to wear sneakers while all the other Marines had to wear boots. Can't imagine that didn't get him in trouble with the other boys. On March the 15th, the four Raider battalions were reorganized as the 1st Raider Regiment, stationed at Espirito Santo with Liversedge as their commander and Carlson their executive officer. Carlson infused his fireteam and squad models into the Raiders, while Edson molded them into a highly trained, lightly equipped force who could accomplish special missions or fill a line battalion on the fly. The 1st Raider Regiment was no guerrilla outfit, though it felt like it initially. For Operation Toenails, Halsey assigned both the 1st Raiders led by Lt. Col. Griffith and the 4th Raiders led by Lt. Col. Michael Curran, supported by the 9th Defense Battalion, which was carrying a 155mm gun unit and light tank platoon. The Navy was also sending the legendary Seabees, Acorn 7, the 24th and single section of the 20th Naval Construction Battalions. It cannot be said enough how much the Seabees brought to the table in the Pacific. During World War II, the Seabees would receive five Navy crosses, 33 silver stars, and over 2,000 purple hearts, alongside numerous citations and commendations. They performed legendary deeds in the Atlantic and Pacific, creating over 400 advanced bases along the five figurative roads to victory. Lastly, and quite interesting to note, the Americans would have the help of a unique commando unit made of 130 Fijians, known as the 1st Commando Fiji Guerrillas. When the Pacific War broke out, 
Japan had seized numerous territories going as far as the Solomon Islands, getting just 8 hours flight time away from places like Fiji. At this time, Britain was too preoccupied with the Atlantic, and America was scrambling to recover from Pearl Harbor. Fiji was in a critical position, and for several months while the United States was organizing her forces, so was Fiji. Fiji possessed two good harbors and two airfields, and her position on Earth put her smack dab on the way between America and Australia and New Zealand. The Allies knew the Japanese would love to take such a territory, and thus she needed to be defended. Small numbers of troops were garrisoning Fiji, many from New Zealand, but New Zealand had little to spare as she had become heavily committed to Africa and the Middle East. Thus, the Americans came to Fiji to relieve the New Zealanders, and they helped expand Fiji's forces. The result were commando units who proved themselves uniquely equipped for combat on Pacific Islands, like the Solomons. For New Georgia, the Fiji guerrillas were tasked with locating enemy soldiers scattered about the island. The Eastern Landing Force consisted of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 103rd Regiment, alongside the 4th Raider Battalion, to be led by Colonel Daniel Hudley. Their job was to secure the lines of communication to Rendova, directly across from Munda. The Western Landing Force consisted of the 172nd and 169th Regiments, the 3rd Battalion, 103rd Regiment, 9th Marine Defense Battalion, 24th Naval Construction Battalion Seabees, and the 1st Commando Fiji Guerrillas, to be led by General Hester. They had the initial mission of securing the island of Rendova, and afterwards the three islets in the Blanche Channel, opposite of Munda. For the islets, it would be the job of Companies A and B of the 169th Regiment and the 1st Commando Fiji Guerrillas. Once all of that was done, the 172nd and the 169th Regiments led by Brigadier General Leonard Wing would advance to Cezanna through the Haniovasa Passage and take an overland route over the Barake River for the final drive upon Munda, which would be supported by a destroyer bombardment. Hester also planned to use the 3rd Battalion 103rd Regiment to hook around Munda from the west coast. For all of these amphibious landings, Admiral Turner was in charge with Task Force 31. He divided his forces into two groups. The Western Force under his personal command, which would make the Rendova landings, and the Eastern Force would be led by Rear Admiral George Fort, who would perform the landings at Wickham, Segi Point, and Vito Harbor. For the Rendova Harbor landing, Turner employed four attack transports and two Akkas. During World War II, Akka referred to merchant ships that were modified for combat use. These took the 172nd Regiment and the 24th Seabees over on June the 30th, while Turner's larger landing craft, LSTs, which are landing ship tanks, LCTs, which are landing craft tanks, and LCIs, which is landing craft infantry, would move Hester's initial units over for the next few days. All of these amphibious forces would be covered by Halsey's Task Force 36, consisting of forces that had been previously under the command of Admiral Ainsworth and Merrill destroyers, cruisers, some battleships, and a few carriers. Merrill would be helping with the landings by performing a bombardment of the Shortland Islands, as mine layers created minefields across the southern entrance to Bougainville, and a small detachment of destroyers would hit Villa as a diversion. Ainsworth would get himself into position in the seas around Randova, while Admiral Fitch would grant the operation a total of 1,182 aircraft, including 626 from Admiral Mitcher's air souls as cover. To gain air supremacy, 17 air missions were assigned such as PBY crews for the rescue operations and last-minute supply drops over New Georgia. 
AirSol's aircraft would be assigned to New Georgia missions, with a few Dauntless set aside for Russell operations. Admiral Fitch also went ahead and created the New Georgia Air Force, commanded by General McKehey, who would direct missions from the ground. While getting closer to Operation Toenails, Halsey and Turner also decided to add a last-minute landing directed at Rice Anchorage on the Cooley Gulf. Designated Northern Landing Group, the landing was to be performed by the 3rd Battalions of the 145th and 148th Regiments, alongside the 1st Raider Battalion led by Colonel Harry Liversedge. This would occur on July the 4th to create a base from which the Allies would launch an attack against the Enugai Inlet and the Barakai Harbor. By seizing these, the Allies could interdict Japanese supply lines and prevent reinforcement efforts for Munda. Now that is all for the plans involving the Solomons. But Operation Cartwheel had other plans over on New Guinea, being handled by General Douglas MacArthur and Kruger, codenamed Operation Chronicle, the invasion of Woodlark and Kirawina Island. The two Trobrian Islands held airfields and were only 125 miles from New Britain and 200 miles from Bougainville. Capturing them would allow the Allies to launch bombers with fighter escort to hit Rabaul, Kaving, and the Northern Solomons. It was also a great opportunity to test what was colloquially known as MacArthur's Navy, officially known as the 7th Amphibious Force. Now, Lieutenant General Kruger had sent reconnaissance missions to the islands, which indicated there were no Japanese present on them, at least in May. Nonetheless, he instructed the men to prepare for a fight, and at the least to expect aerial attacks when they were approaching them. Kruger's plan of attack was simplistic. Colonel Julian Cunningham would lead the Woodlark Force. This consisted of the 112th Cavalry Regiment, the 134th Field Artillery Battalion, and the 12th Defense Battalion. Also, the 20th and 60th Naval Construction Battalions and Argus I would join them. They would depart Townsville, Australia on June the 25th and land on Woodlark by June the 30th. The Kirawina Force would be led by Colonel Prue Herndon, consisting of the 158th Regiment, and the 148th Field Artillery Battalion. They would depart from Milne Bay on June the 30th and quickly land on Kirawina the very same day. To get them to the beaches, Admiral Barbie would have four destroyer transports, the Gilmber, Sands, Humphrey, and Brooks, alongside six LSTs, a subchaser, seven mechanized landing crafts, two small coastal transports, and a survey ship, a real hodgepodge team. Escorting all of them would be Barbie's Task Force 76, consisting of the destroyers Mugford, Bagley, Cunningham, Henley, and Helm, along with Carpenter's Task Force 74, consisting of cruisers Australia and Jobart, with destroyers Arunta and Waramunga. For aerial support, they had multiple squadrons from Australia Wing 73, operating off Goodenough Island. Now on the grounds of New Guinea in mid-June, General Savage, Herring, Berryman, and Colonels Archibald McKenchney met with Brigadier Moton to hear about his plans for the 17th Brigade's Salamaua Offensive. Moton laid out a five-phase plan. Phase 1 consisted of the 1st Battalion 162nd Regiment creating a beachhead in Nassau Bay, with the support of a company from the 2 and 6th Battalion. Phase 2 would see the 2 and 6 reinforced by a company of the 2 and 5th, who would capture Observation Hill and a ridge between Bui Savella and Kitchen Creek. From there, there would be a move through Mubo Valley to Archway while American forces captured the Bitoy Ridge. Phase 3 would see the capture of Green Hill and the Pimple by American forces and some of the 2 and 6. From there, they could advance towards Kamatium and Locano. 
Phase 4 would see the 2 and 5th advance from Mubo through the 2 and 6th position to occupy Mount Tambu, linking up with the 15th Brigade at Comantium. And lastly, Phase 5 would see the capture of Lucanu and Bussi, clearing the enemy away from the Francisco River area. The plan looked good to all the people present, but nothing was mentioned about the capture of Lei, nor the critical fact that Salamaua needed to fall prior to Lei lest they all lose the element of surprise for Operation Postern. This was done for security reasons. It all had to be held under wraps. But despite this, General Savage remained convinced that he had to capture Salamaua as soon as possible. His subordinate, Brigadier Moton, was aware of the grand plan created by Blamey. Yet while all of these Allied commanders were planning, a war was still afoot, and the Japanese tossed a counteroffensive on the night of June the 20th. The Japanese commanders had determined in late May they needed to dislodge the Australians from Lababia Ridge. General Nakano had brought forward 1,500 men of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 66th Regiment. He concealed his men's movements by ordering heavy airstrikes and ordered the men to make no fires while they marched. This also allowed the exhausted 102nd Infantry Regiment to rotate back a bit as they had been fighting the Australians ever since the Battle of Wau. On the 20th, Nakano began sending patrols made up of the 66th with a few guys from the 102nd who probed the Australian position around Lababia Ridge. And at this time, it was only being held by about 80 men. The Japanese patrols diffused many booby traps the Australians laid out for them, made up of piano wire attached to hand grenades. However, the Japanese were not too familiar with Australian hand grenades, so instead of pocketing them to use them against the enemy, they simply left them around. Some sporadic skirmishes occurred that day, alongside some bombing missions aimed at Guadalcanal, Mat Mat, and the Mubo Valley. 83 Japanese aircraft caused some casualties and damage against the 2 and 6th and spooked a ton of native carriers. The next day, the Australians would be searching for native carriers who had fled, losing around 578 of them for three days. This greatly delayed the movement of rations, ammunition, and other supplies. On the morning of June the 21st, the 1st Battalion of Araki, guided by the men of the 102nd Regiment, began advancing around the eastern flank of the Australian position at Lababia, getting into position for a dawn attack set for the following day. Behind them was the 2nd Battalion, who were doing a similar maneuver but on the Australians' left flank. The Japanese were extremely careful as they advanced, having learned bitter lessons throughout the war about how much the Australians liked to hang around hand grenades attached to piano wire just about anywhere they would think to walk. Oh, and it was not limited to frag grenades. No, these booby traps were hooked up to thermite grenades, cans of petrol, and other goodies. Now they were going to be attacking 80 men, as I said, which were being led by Captain Walter Dexter's D Company. He had two platoons in a forward position along the Jap track, and two others on the back guarding his HQ. Further north, he set up listening posts to watch for enemy activity around the pimple. Dexter figured he was holding a decent enough position, going on to say, If you're going to fight them, you've got to see them. Around noon, Australian patrols began to notice signs of Japanese activity along the track towards the observation post, just a bit due east along the ridge. At 7.30, the telephone line to the observation post was suddenly cut, and the Japanese could be seen approaching. The Australians went to work, setting off booby traps that had been rigged as early warning devices and a small firefight emerged. Then at 2pm, the Japanese launched an assault from the north and northeast of the Australian position, firing off their motors. 
by the way, small note, there was an individual who uh, finally let me know I've been saying that wrong this entire time because I am a complete idiot. So I am going to stop saying motars with that strong T. I'm going to start saying it the way it's supposed to be, motors. Yeah, I do apologize for that. And all the uh, other things I mispronounce. The Japanese were repelled, but they came right back later in the afternoon screaming into a bayonet charge. Over the course of the afternoon, three major attacks were made to the sound of Japanese bugles. It was the classic Japanese strategy to intimidate the enemy, but it was actually aiding the Australians as an early warning. The attacks were turned back, and during the night, the Australians were finally reinforced by another platoon, 70 men of C Company led by Corporal Keith Mew. As the night wore on, the Australians sent out some patrols to try and make contact with their forward positions, only to find out that they had been wiped out in the attacks. Meanwhile, under heavy rain, the Japanese were recovering their wounded and trying to get rid of more of the pesky booby traps in front of the Australian positions. With the next morning came screams and charging Japanese, setting off more booby traps all morning long. Dexter responded by ordering the men to shoot mortars and rifle grenades at anything that looked like a Japanese position. At 2 p.m. on the 21st, the Japanese began a heavy attack on one of the forward positions held by Sergeant John Heaterman, lying between the Jap track and the Lababia track. The attack spread roaches in Lieutenant Edward Exton's front, sending a rain of automatic and mortar fire into the two forward platoons. A bayonet charge along the Jap track was halted within just 10 yards of the forward positions, and another one to the right flank got within 20 yards after being stopped. The Australians tossed lead in all forms into the Banzai charges, but no matter how much mortar, bullets, and grenades were tossed, the Japanese were still closing in. Sensing a breakthrough could come at any moment, Moton ordered forward more men from the 2 and 5th Battalion, allowing Dexter to reinforce his left flank using a small reserve he had at his HQ. They arrived at the flank just in time to repel another Banzai charge. By the late afternoon, the Australians had 12 dead men, 10 wounded, and they were down to just 55 able bodies, but the brunt of the Japanese attack was done. The arrival of C Company allowed Dexter to reinforce his forward positions, now bolstered to 150 men. The Japanese did not give up, however, and they continued their attack during the late afternoon. Suffering so many casualties, it looked like the Japanese might break through Exton's position. Exton and Corporal Martin charged forward to rally their men, getting them through the brunt of another assault. By dusk, the attacks began to decrease until they gradually stopped. The night saw a ton of rain, making it miserable for the Japanese who were dragging their wounded and dead comrades through booby-trap jungle. On the morning of the 22nd, Araki sent some patrols to probe Dexter's left flank, and they were met by Australian sniper fire. An attack was launched against Dexter's rear, held by Smith's platoon, who overwhelmed the Japanese, causing them to give up after just five minutes of combat. Frustrated by the lack of progress, Ataki ordered his two mountain guns from the 14th Artillery Regiment to start shelling Lababia. However, the foliage was too much, and only two shells actually landed within Dexter's perimeter. Thus, when the Japanese recommenced their attacks, they were met by the exact same full brunt of the defenders' force. By nightfall, Araki was forced to toss in the towel, and he ordered the men to begin a withdrawal. To cover the retreat, Araki ordered his men to fire heavy automatic guns and mortars into Dexter's position on the morning of the 23rd. The Australians responded the same way, but then Dexter unleashed a nasty little surprise. He ordered his units to mark the forward lines with smoke. Soon the RAF sent Bristol Bow fighters in who strafed the Japanese up and down the Jap track. It was an incredible defense, 
the defenders had been outnumbered 10 to 1. The Japanese had received 42 deaths, 131 wounded, while killing 11 men and wounding 12. As Moton would go on to say, The engagement is noteworthy, and it is a classic example of how well dug in determined troops can resist heavy attacks from numerically superior enemies. Dexter had been pretty much left to his own to defend Labavia, and for his excellent leadership he was later awarded a Distinguished Service Order, while some of his platoon commanders such as Lieutenant Edward Exton, Lawrence, and Roach received military crosses, and Sergeant John Hederman received a military medal. Dexter was praised by Moton for quote, Taking every trick during the battle. One of his colleagues, Captain Joe Gullett, described Dexter as, he was too exacting to be popular, although he was a thorough soldier, a good trainer of men, and a painstaking tactician. The Babi was secured, and in the next week major operations were about to begin. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you were still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I just now released a podcast interview with Brad St. Croix on Canada during the Pacific War. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. Over there, you can find exclusive podcasts, such as my series on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the author behind the final war theory. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Operation Cartwheel was getting its ducks all in order for a major push set on June the 30th. The boys down under fought like lions to protect Lababia Ridge. Outnumbered 10 to 1, they proved well-dug-in positions sometimes made all the difference. <laughs>